This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. It's for for Friday. A special hello to Paul. He's been on the Apple Podcasty thing uh, and has posted a review. Five stars, no less. Says Matt's program is my choice of listening during the morning when I get the chance. But having a podcast with a columnist in the main feature makes up for missing the show. Consistently entertaining with the columnist and diverse on the features. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. I couldn't agree more. Genuinely didn't write that myself. Uh, coming up on uh, today's episode of the podcast, everyone's talking about letters. Letters going into Graham Brady. How many letters are there? Are there 54? Have people taken their letters back? All of that. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about letters which have changed political history down the years. Uh, from letters to prime ministers trying to get them to change their policies to Daniel Finkelstein's letter from Harold Wilson about watching the Muppets. Genuinely, it's great. That's coming up. Uh, first as ever, on a Friday, we kick off with our columnist panel. And it is Formel. It's James Forsyth and Melanie Reid. If people listening to this thought it was all going to be over soon, uh, it was all going to come to a head and talk of Boris Johnson's future was going to be all all done and dusted within a matter of days. James, you've got some bad news for them. I think this is going to go on for quite some time. Um, one Tory MP who has a kind of foot in both camps um, says it said to me that they think we're in for a kind of period of a few weeks of trench warfare um, between the rebels and the Johnson loyalists over whether you get to that 54 letters mark. Um, I mean, my, my best estimate is that if the Grey report kind of lands where you know, where number 10 have been suggesting to people it will land, that you'll probably get to about 40 letters. So that, that that's a bit, you know, they'll be bobbing around that. Now, obviously, if it's worse, the number could go up. But um, I, I don't think this is going to be quick. Um, I suppose, you know, those, those, and I've sort of talked about this a bit before, but those of us who, who lived through the Theresa May debacle, we, we spent most of the summer of 2018 and into the autumn talking about letters. Jacob Rees-Mogg put in his letter and we thought, oh, that'll be it now. It was another month before there was a vote, which she won, and another six months before she finally left number 10. Yeah, it's a long process. And it's worth remembering that, uh, you know, in November 2018, they were completely convinced that they had the, the, uh, then it was 48 letters they needed. And it took another three weeks to actually get there because, you know, 
people say they put a letter in and they haven't and all those kind of things or someone else is persuaded to take their letter out so i, I think i think this is going to be a drawn out process i mean the, there is a kind of question about where um where this lands what if you i think if you get to the confidence vote then i think the dynamic is very different uh that theresa may vote lots of people who had didn't have any confidence in her voted for her because they had less confidence in what they perceived as being the alternative which was you know um steve baker and uh jacob reese mogg and, and, and a kind of and a harder brexit how before i come to money james how significant do you think the steve baker intervention was yesterday i mean he's often been the sort of puppet master of tory rebellions of one kind or another you know he did it with uh david cameron over trying to get a, a, a eu referendum he did it with theresa may as we were just discussing is that is that more problematic you know but bluntly steve baker is a smarter operator than andrew bridget and if steve baker's now in the let's get boris johnson out camp that's that's a worry for him isn't it I read that Steve Baker quote as basically saying, I'm not going to do it, but don't let me stop you. <laughs> very good. Very good. Um, uh, Melanie, does your heart sing at the prospect of this dragging on for months? I, it, it's quite extraordinary because it's while, while they're doing this, it's kind of all the navel gazing and the disruption, you know, labor are enjoying and prolonging, uh, prolonging it because it, it uh, you know the, the the Tory brand is getting more and more contaminated and uh, the difference surely is this time is that um, there's there's a more credible leader in charge of in charge of the opposition um uh you know it, it was caught when when all this was going on uh, uh, tor- torturing Theresa May it was it was Corbyn and so there was no alternative but now um you know if we're getting something like 98% of cut through on on this whole thing, everyone knows about this now, and it's dragging on. Um, they're they're going to start seeing in in Keir Starmer someone slightly more credible to vote for. So it it it's a form of um, you know they're they're, they're destroying themselves. Um, it it is it's a spectator sport. It's I mean it's great. It, this you know I, it, it's immensely good spectator sport. I mean my carer comes in the morning and she comes bursting in saying, "Have you heard the latest about Boris Johnson?" <laughs> Now you know this is this is extraordinary. Um, it, it, it's uh, I I I think um, yeah. It is it is extraordinary. It's one of those. It's the, it's when the story has sort of proper cut through when everyone is talking about it and following yeah. every twist and turn. When non-political friends are messaging me and saying what's going to happen as if as if I know. Um, on the subject of the Labour Party, my favourite, um, somebody sent me a message on Twitter this morning saying, wouldn't it be good to hear some serious politics from Labour rather than trying to bring down the government? <laughs> and part of me thought, I mean, that's basically their job, isn't it, James? I mean, how do you think Labour are doing in, in handling this, this, this crisis? I think it, I think Labour want to draw this crisis out for as long as possible. Um, I think that you know, considering how long Christian Wakeford uh, had been in conversations with Labour, so so kind of brilliantly detailed by Henry Zeffman and Patrick Maguire in in, in the Times the other day, um, it's quite clear that they they essentially appear to have chosen the moment of his defection. And I think anyone who has been around Westminster know that political parties are tribal. So if someone walks out and defects, there is a kind of temporary rallying round of the ranks. And that is really what stopped the plotting 
um, you know, stone dead, uh, or you paused it, I think is the best way of putting it. And I think Labour knew that the defection would pause the plotting. I mean, that is a sign that they want this to go on for as long as possible. You know, for Labour, the ideal world is that, you know, you have a no-confidence vote, Boris Johnson wins it 52 to 48 and um, and is determined to carry on. And, you know, you just you just have a Tory party that is that is paralysed by um, these tensions. And what do we make of uh, Liz, Tr- Liz Truss standing shoulder to shoulder with the prime minister in Australia? Uh, Rishi Sunak's support, I think it's fair to say, has been tepid, uh, support, uh, supporting Boris Johnson's call to wait for Sue Gray. Um, what do you think, though, uh, are, behind the scenes, are they ramping up for the possibility of a leadership contest, James? Because actually, you don't want to be seen to be doing it too publicly. But also, there's, you know, if you if you leave it, you end up in a sort of David Miliband situation where um, others have overtaken you. I think that kind of post the, the phone lines going in, there has always been a kind of hesitance on the Tory side to to look like you're getting ready. So I should early. explain. This is Michael Patillo back in. Yeah. Which one was this? Uh, 95? 95. Yeah, he was, he um, started installing phone lines. Um, now, now, now you'd be caught what, setting up a WhatsApp group called Portillo for PM or something. Uh, but he was installing phone lines. And that made clear that he was preparing to start ringing round potential supporters. Um, yeah, and I think one of the things that gave you know, I mean, Boris Johnson probably would have won anyway in 2019, but one of the things that gave him an advantage was that because he was outside the government and because he was clearly at odds with Theresa May, you know, voting against her on Brexit on a regular basis, you know, he basically could lay down his kind of campaign infrastructure, start meeting MPs, all those things, you know, long in advance of a contest. I, I, don't, I don't think you're going to see cabinet ministers doing that this time around because it is inherently risky. Um, what do you think, uh, Melanie? Who's who's ahead? Do you think in in your mind in the in the potential possible not quite yet race to replace Boris Johnson? I think in terms of um, being well known, I think Rishi Sunak because of, because of furlough. I mean, I think what what he did and the the kind of the glossy reputation he acquired through um you know playing father christmas when we were all in lockdown um <laughs> for uh for I mean, it was a, it was a wonderful role to have and uh it saved the bacon of millions of of workers and um you know i think i think they they he he still has the the the, the run on the run on from that that that's still that glow it's not tarnished yet um, so yeah, I, I, you know, if, if, if I, you know, I mean, you guys are, are in with the gossip and you hear, I mean, the sort of outsiders like, uh, Tom Tugendhat and people like this who, you know, who could well come racing in. Um, but from, from the sort of the, the ordinary people's person uh, point of view, I, I think, uh, Rishi Sunak has it at the moment. It's an interesting question, then, isn't it, James? That in the past you'd have, you might have discounted the likes of Tom Tugendhat on the basis that he's never been a minister, never mind uh, being prime minister. But actually, you know, the bar for suitability for the job or proven track record may have been lowered somewhat by the past couple of years. So you sort of want—is the field wide open, or is it essentially, do you think, a race between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss? I think it is very difficult to say I've never held any job in government and I would now like to be the prime minister. <laughs> um, uh, although set against that, I think, you know, there is obviously in the current circumstances, you can see an advantage from coming from outside the government. 
you know that you know you are you, you are you don't have to um send out tweets saying um let's wait for sue gray you can kind of you can have slightly more distance um and so but i but i still think it is a, it is a stretch to imagine someone becoming prime minister who has not been a minister beforehand um i think if you know some of the people who like jeremy hunt you know talk him up on the basis that you know that that he that, that that he offers you kind of you know both of those options he's not been in this government but you know he's got extensive cabinet experience uh but i i still think he's probably likely to be someone from the current cabinet well, we'll wait and see um, uh, who exactly it is who starts installing phone lines. Um, just wanted to uh, let, let's talk about. In fact, if we got the um, let's 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 play this again. Just this is, this is the sort of thing that the government isn't going to remove. This is surely. That Grant Shapps, amid everything else which is going on in Britain today, Grant Shapps has declared war on annoying announcements on trains. Melanie, do you welcome this move? <laughs> I, I, I mean, it just um, is this. Tell me. I mean, you guys, tell me. Is it? Is this just the next thing on the 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 Operation Red Meat? You know, the pop <laughs> the populist list. I mean, I think is if it a... is, it's it's not, not so much red meat as thin gruel. I mean, I mean, what's next? You know, actors mumbling on TV or speed bumps. I mean, this is <laughs> this. It, it, it's insane. You the know, one, I mean, okay. one of the ones that he's um, uh, tried to draw attention on Twitter this morning is: please put unwanted newspapers in the bin. Which I mean, it is annoying if you're on a train and there's just this relentless. I mean, I would go further and I would ban the chatty train guard. Who's you know welcoming yeah. everyone aboard? Hope you're all very well. I'll be coming through the carriage. It's a good. It's a sunny Friday morning. Uh, I remember one. <laughs> Matt, Matat, Matt, I remember one guard asking. Guard, you would be the chattiest of train guards. Which is why it's probably a very good job that I'm not. I remember one. <laughs> I, I, I think I, I think he must have moved on to a different one now. He used to be on all the time, and he used to come on the on the uh, on the PA system and ask a trivia question, and then walk through the carriage <laughs> asking people to shout out their answers. <laughs> Oh God! Give it away. Anyway, so you're 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 uh, you're pro the um, the chatty train guard, are you, Dave? No, I just I just think that you know sometimes <laughs> position. You know, you think that sometimes there's a place for it, but sometimes there's a place it's, for it. Well, it's nice. It's nice to hear a real person rather than a, a, a an announcement, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 you know, the worst. Sorry. No, go ahead. I mean, I, 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 I just love to. You know, it, it's nice to meet a train guard. I hear them in real life, so even if they are a bit, a bit sort of fond of their own voice. But uh, it's, it's the recorded ones can be a bit, yeah. The worst are those Virgin Lou's that talk to you. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, there's assault on all the senses as well. Those Virgin toilets. They're, I hadn't actually realised this. So I thought this was just like a bit of nonsense in the papers, but this is actually they've put out a press release about it now. This does seem like this. It's like a joke. Quieter trains are set to become the norm after the government announced will identify and remove repetitive and unnecessary onboard announcements on trains in England. Oh, sorry, Melanie. It's only in yes. England. The changes mean that passengers will no longer be bombarded with unnecessary tannoy spam <laughs> that distracts from important safety critical messaging. There's a review is going to be take. It's going to last a year. The review. With redundant messages identified and started to be removed in the coming months. 
Wow, the Rail Delivery Group is involved. There's acronyms and all. Banal announcements set to be cold include self-evident instructions, such as having your ticket ready when leaving the station, and contradictory calls for passengers to keep volume levels low while our onboard announcements blare out. It goes on and on and on. It's got it so long. Is, is there any is there any mention of of toilets? No mention of toilets. I think you're talking toilets. That might be. That might have to be the separate the subject of a of a separate uh, review. I'm afraid, Joe. <laughs> Um, we haven't got the lovely up white paper, but we have got this. Yes, yes, uh, yeah, or loo paper, or whatever. Maybe the two things will come together. Uh, before I let you go, we're talking about um, letters, because letters being sent to, to Graham Brady, uh, although we don't know how many there are. So we're talking later on about um, letters that have changed the course of political history. People have been sending in their best or worst letters they've ever been sent. Uh, Antonio says, when I was young, I received a letter from the actual father Christmas just before Christmas. And I know it was genuine because my sister didn't get one and she was livid. Um, James or, or Melanie, best or worst letter you've ever been sent? Oh, James, you do it. Oh, um, when, I, when I was about uh, nine or ten, I think, I entered a, a, a competition to find a, a kind of cricket commentator. And I got a very nice letter back. Test match special, telling me that 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 they're returning my tape and telling me I come fourth, which I was very pleased with. Oh, that's, that's nice. Lovely. Yeah, and I got once got uh, from a, a Times reader. I got a really lovely letter saying that my column had genuinely helped them come to terms with their life uh, because of their disability. So I, you know, I, I to be very to be equally serious, I think I think you can get wonderful letters. Oh, that's not. I, th- I can honestly say nobody's ever said that my column has improved their life. <laughs> <laughs> James Forsyth and Melanie Reid there. You can read James in the Times on a Friday, Melanie in the Times magazine on a Saturday, where you can also read my column. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, letters which change political history. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Yes, we're talking letters right now. Not the ins and outs of letters sent to Graham Brady, who, uh, of course, is the chair of the 1922 committee. If he gets 54 letters through his letterbox, that will trigger a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson. But only, forget what anyone says, only one person knows 
how many letters Graham Brady's got. And that's Graham Brady. And he's currently on a long weekend away with his wife. So don't believe anything that anyone tells you. So what we thought we'd do, though, today is look at other letters which have changed the course of political history and uh, what they can tell us about politics today. It's all inspired by a, a new project which has been set up by uh, Dr Kit Cowell from the King's College London. Morning, Kit. Morning, Matt. Uh, we've also got Professor Richard Toy from the University of Essex with us. Hi, Richard. Uh, good morning. Exeter, in fact. What did I say? Essex. I know it says Essex. It does say Exeter in front of me. I'm just an idiot. I can't even read out loud, which is a good start when we're going to be talking about reading letters. So I do apologise. Yeah. <laughs> University of Exeter. Of course, you've been, I think we spoke to uh, you before, Richard. Um, Kit, explain for us, first of all, how this um, project has come about and what your, where, where you started when looking at political letters. Yeah, so um, I actually started um, uh, as part of a book that I'm writing about uh, conservatism in the Second World War. And uh, I found amongst Winston Churchill's papers a big chunk of files called condolence letters. And I couldn't really work out what was this was going to be about because, to my knowledge, no one who Churchill really knew had died in the period I was looking at, which was just after the general election. Um, and when I got that file out of the archive, lo and behold, it was full of hundreds and hundreds of letters from the general public and from MPs and well-wishers, um, uh, offering their condolence on Churchill's loss um, at the 1945 general election. Um, so kind of intrigued by this, I kind of analysed those and started to think about what the history of these letters and different types of correspondence to politicians has been in Britain and what that might tell us about political culture and people's understanding of politics and leaders um, before and after. It's really interesting. That. It's a reminder that even when he lost the election, it doesn't mean a hundred percent of people in Britain were were pleased with uh, that result, like you know, with any election. Um, but and I suppose if you're in your worst moments when you've just lost the general election, you know, that's gratitude for you after winning the war. Presumably, he must have taken some comfort for that for having decided to keep them. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, we don't know um, why uh, these letters were kept rather than others. So he, he re received thousands. The Conservative Party had to um, actually bring in kind of extra workers to go through them all. They had to set up a small incinerator um, to deal with all of the correspondence afterwards. And we've only got about 600 of the letters that were sent remaining. Um, but he, whether or not he read all of them, we know that he certainly read some of them and he replied um, directly to individual members of the public. And we have records, certainly, of his staff finding uh, comfort um, and enjoyment um, from reading some of them, too. And Richard, this is just one example of, of lots of them that you've, you've already uncovered of where uh, the public have, um, in quite large numbers, quite often contacted political leaders for one reason or another. That's right. I mean, I think there are lots of different motivations that people can have for wanting to write to an MP or a political leader. Sometimes it can be very instrumental if they've got a, a problem with their housing or some issue like that. Um, that was that really after 1918 in the era of mass enfranchisement, the role of MPs changed. So they were much more starting to beginning to be expected to deal with these problems. Some MPs didn't want to do it. They didn't want to they didn't see their role as being a social worker, as some of them put it. But that's become a kind of essential part of, uh, of an MP's job. 
detailed constituency work. And then, of course, people may write for quite other motivations. They may be seeking policy change or, as in the letters to Churchill, they may simply be trying to express themselves emotionally you know, to, to have established some kind of relationship or contact uh, with somebody who might seem you know, quite distant from ordinary people's lives. And have you uncovered uh, any kit which individual letters which, which have had such an impact that they have sort of changed the course of political history? Um, well, I mean, it's hard to, um, hard to say that. I mean, certainly we have records um, from some of Lloyd, well, one of Lloyd George's advisors in 1918 at the end of the First World War, um, saying we're receiving thousands of letters about the need for reparations um, against Germany for the fact that you know that Kaiser should be put on trial. Um, and in this kind of diary account, uh, the advisor makes the claim that these letters were one of the things that influenced Lloyd George. Um, in his election campaign um, at the end of the First World War. Um, how, far, how far that's true is something we're going to look into. But if it's the case, I mean, that's a really great example of the way in which and a politician getting a sense of popular feeling um, directly through letters uh, initiates a huge policy change with, uh, well, incredible international and uh, consequences. It's really interesting that, and even things like um, uh, the, the the letters that Neville Chamberlain got praising from his response to the Munich crisis. You know, it's a reminder that in the in the heat of the moment that it, you know history takes a different view. But the heat of the moment, if you're getting lots of letters saying we think you've done the right thing, thank you for trying to avoid uh, a second world war, then then you know that that's presumably interview uh, influencing you as well. Um, I, I want to talk about uh, Michael Foot. And the yeah. uh, <laughs> who knows best about the Michael Foot letters? Cute, I think. I think that's probably me. Go I mean, on then, tell us um, about the Michael Foot letters and, and vouchers. So, yes. Yeah, so famously, um, in 1981, at the uh, remembrance service held at the cenotaph, Michael Foot was pictured not wearing kind of an elegant uh, black dress coat, but a green. Um, coat that was referred to in the press as a donkey jacket. Um, and this elicited a lot of howls of protest that he wasn't taking it seriously. Here's this kind of, uh, yeah, socialist not pay, being, paying his proper respect. And his letters, his archives are full of letters from people sending him pennies, pounds, and even a uh, voucher from M&S to go and buy himself a new coat. Um, why he kept these, uh, we don't exactly know, but they've certainly elicited quite a lot of laughs from us. And so, is the voucher still in the archive? It's still in the archive. So, when unused, um, unused, and in fact, like not only do people send letters to politicians, um, what we're finding is that uh, in the archives, actually, quite a lot of gifts still remain. There are um, uh, kind of cigar cutters sent to Winston Churchill that are knocking around. There are um, fly, uh, flies for fishing um, stuck to letters that are in Neville Chamberlain's archives. Um, a real treasure trove out there to be discovered. Um, when, you, and when, when you talk about the archive, what are we talking about here? Because obviously Michael Foote was leader of the opposition, didn't become prime minister. There's not a sort of 
number 10 prime ministerial archive. How is it that you've managed to get your hands on a Marks and Spencer's voucher that was sent to Michael Foote to buy a new coat? Well, um, that archive, um, that set of papers are at the People's History Museum in Manchester. Um, and, I mean, it, we're, we're very lucky to have um, papers like that. The, the collection of them is often down to the secretaries and back office staff that were working for these different politicians at the time. Um, maybe these, sometimes these things were um, recorded uh, for kind of posterity. Maybe they wanted to um, uh, reply back to people, but often it was a case of just hanging on to um, what was there. So there's very much a kind of hit and miss approach um, that we're finding to collecting and retaining these letters that were sent. But let's bring in uh, Daniel Finkelstein, our very own Times columnist and regular here on the show. Um, and Danny, uh, the reason we've got you on is because you have a pretty substantial collection of letters from uh, British Prime Ministers. Yeah, British Prime Ministers and other prominent politicians, mainly uh, Prime Ministers. Um, one or two of them, I've only got things like warrants that they've signed or little messages. You know, Macmillan, I've got a message sent to one of his private secretaries thanking him for a draft note. But mainly they are substantial letters. At first, handwritten and later uh, typed. Um, and so who's, who don't you have? Or have you got every Prime Minister? Well, no, I haven't got Churchill. And the reason for that, I mean, really, you can really buy Prime Ministerial letters very cheaply. Uh, and, um, you know, Robert Peel's letter to his son about some land deal they'd done, cheaper than Tommy Cooper's autograph, that. Uh, <laughs> um, how, how much so are we talking, it, when you it, say cheap, do you mean like £5, £100? No. Uh, in that particular case, that was particularly cheap, but it was about sixty pounds. Okay. But a hundred pounds, a hundred—not very much at all. Hundred pounds is very standard. I mean, obviously, that is a lot of money. Um, but uh, I consider cons consider the artifact. Um, considering the artifact, it's not very expensive. But the one that is expensive is Churchill. And so, um, once I get to the point where I've collected everything else, I'll have to have a discussion with Nikki, my, my wife, about whether or not <laughs> whether or not it constitutes an investment or a consumption good. Um, so uh, I think my favourite of all the letters, weirdly, um, a very short letter is just um, actually a couple of couple of good ones. Yeah, pick uh, them because I've got uh, copies of them as well, so I can see them in front of me. So yeah, well, so I want to start with with this one, which is um, dear Ms. Gray, many thanks for your letter. I'm afraid that I receive many similar requests, but enclose an autographed cookbook, which I hope may be useful for your auction. With kind regards, yours sincerely, Jeremy Thorpe. And the reason why I find this a very interesting letter is that it was sent on the 27th of July, 1979. In other words, only just over a month after he was acquitted of conspiracy to murder at the <laughs> Old Bailey, um, and was completely ruined. And this was from the NSPCC in Rainsford, um, in, in, in Merseyside. And you wonder why the NSPCC wanted to auction a Jeremy Thorpe cookbook one month after this trial. So that's one of my favourite ones. I mean, um, I suppose I, at least I, it wasn't a sort of a guidebook, you know, to Dartmoor. I suppose that's the only way it could have possibly been worse. Exactly. I suppose my favourite of all is um, this one from uh, the, the 25th of January, uh, 1865. So just actually um, not very long before the gentleman involved uh, in sending this letter died and the gentleman being Palmerston. It's my dear Phipps, thank you for your answers about Forsyth. I'm glad you did not write to him, for I have found by experience that crazy people have a mania for letter writing and answering their letters only encourages them. Uh, yours sincerely, Palmerston. That, I think, is a pretty 
Much of the universal. That's a great and, uh, letter. I'm that's sure really that good. Professor Toy, for example, will have uh, will recognise that as a historical, both historically typical of Palmerston and of letters. Well, I, I might say that, of course, um, it is true that you get many very eccentric letters in these collections. And some people will say, oh, well, you know, you can't put any weight on uh, you know, letters written to politicians because they are all written by crazy people. Uh, but I think that we're interested in you know, we're not necessarily thinking that these letters will be sort of representative of public opinion in some way, uh, but rather that they tell us uh, you know, that we're interested in kind of marginalized people who may write crazy letters in green ink as well. And you know, why did they then um, you know, think that it would do some good in their you know, sort of perhaps slightly crazy mental worldview. Why did they think that it was a good idea to write to you know, Margaret Thatcher or um, you know, Michael Foote or whoever? Um, and just uh, for- I do, Matt, I do think one of the things that is pretty interesting, and I, I would uh, to ask you know, both our experts about this, um, quite a lot of letters that you would assume would be public property are simply privately available. You can buy on eBay. Uh, you know, one of the one of the examples that I've got is um, uh, Mr. Chamberlain, with his humble duty to the king, has the honour to recommend that Sir Albert Charles Clawson, CBE, be sworn of Your Majesty's most honourable privy council on his appointment as Lord Justice of Appeal. Signed by Neville Chamberlain, approved by uh, King George uh, Rex Imperator, in other words, by uh, George the Sixth and uh, King and Emperor, uh, on the 13th of January 1938. I was immensely surprised to find that at a fairly uh, cheap price available to pub- private collectors. Well, I think that you know, partly when letters have been sort of sent to ordinary members of the public, then of course they, they belong that person there may well be a copy in an official archive somewhere difficult to explain uh, how a, a letter to the king which maybe ought to have ended up in the royal archives um <laughs> you, know, you know is 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 available on ebay but of course um it may be you know, that everybody's we can't assume that sort of everybody's practices are um around the office are really what they should be and that sometimes you find that things get you know just binned or destroyed Uh, for no good reason. Sometimes they are thrown in the bin and somebody thinks, oh, well, this has got an important signature on it. I will pick it up and I'll sneak it out. Yeah, that must be okay. Just while you were talking there, Danny, I've I've hopped onto eBay. Obviously, other auction sites are available. Um, uh, And if you put in Prime Minister letter, I mean, you you can get Lord John Russell, £20, Disraeli letter to Lord Derby on the Queen's speech, £50. Margaret Thatcher, thirty nine ninety nine. Benjamin Disraeli, forty nine ninety nine. How can you be sure that what you're getting is genuine? Well, um, some of them, you think um, you have to be quite a good person to imitate uh, Lord, to know who Lord Derby is before you can imitate his uh, signature. <laughs> but you have, you have, you have to know what you're doing. Uh, most of these, by the way, although they are for sale on eBay, I wouldn't buy them except for reputable dealers. Um, there are a few people who are reputable dealers and. Um, once you establish who they are, you should buy from them, and you might pay a small premium on doing that. But um, you know, I wouldn't. I would. Uh, I would not buy it from just a general uh, source because most of those would be fake. Um, I, I just love. There are lots of letters turning people down for jobs that end up on eBay. So people um, uh, end up with their, their relatives. End up they may not have um, somebody who was in the cabinet of uh, the Earl of Derby, but they do have a thirty-five pound eBay artifact. Um, and what about uh as i was mentioning uh kit the this issue of these days everything's done electronically 
you know, what what was once, you know, particularly like the Palmerston, was it the Palmerston one, which is basically, you know, I'd be careful writing letters because it only encourages them. That is a letter. These days, that would be a, a WhatsApp between between friends. Is the, the death of uh, um, letter writing depriving us of insight into what goes on in politics, do you think? Yeah, quite possibly. Um, and um, part of this is also down to um, worries about um, GDPR rules, um, and worries about um, the Freedom of Information Act. We know that politicians are quite wary about putting things down on paper these days, much more likely to actually go to old technologies, picking up the phone um, to kind of do the, the, the scheming um, that might have happened um, back and forth over correspondence of old, um, because you know, that can't be requested by members of the public. So yeah, historians are very worried about um, what the future might hold and whether we're going to have the same kind of um, granular detail that we once had um, to kind of plot and trace um, the interactions of high politicians um, over the years. Um, and then actually kind of looking into these kind of questions about who owns letters, who owns copyright behind them, uh, the same with tweets and um, uh, faxes and emails, some of the things that this project is going to do. And uh, Richard, the, 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 some of the examples of, of things that you're looking at actually go right quite recently. Like, you know, for instance, letters that were sent to Jeremy Corbyn that he read it, then read out at PMQs. And there was, there's a brilliant story about letters sent to Gavin Williamson. Um, I don't know the Gavin Williamson oh, story. Um, I, th- I thought it was um, he'd asked. Oh, I think it was on the um, on some some notes about the project you were doing. He'd asked Gavin Williamson had asked uh, parents to write to Ofsted to complain about online learning, and instead Ofsted received five thousand letters of praise. Yeah, <laughs> well, always, think- always always a, a risk that that sort of thing backfires. I, exactly, but I think it also shows sort of you know, the instrumental nature of correspondence, so that um, you know, people it may look like a kind of a private act of writing a letter, which will then be sort of read by one person in an office. But in a way, these can be uh, collective activities where people are encouraged, uh, whether by a, a, a minister or by a campaign group, to write. Where um, you know, we probably all get emails which encourage us to email our MP about some particular urgent issue. And then, of course, MPs may be sceptical of what they think are kind of mass-generated letters uh, or emails, and they'll be more inclined to take seriously ones which look like they are written sort of spontaneously. And therefore, there is sort of people are encouraged uh, then to try and adapt their own message rather than just sort of cutting and pasting. Fact- I'll tell you what, Matt, you know, that that is uh, true the other way as well. I, I noticed that there was a certain point around the beginning of the 20th century where the letters being sent by prime ministers cease being ones that they've written themselves by hand and start being either typed. And the, the one that, that I noticed that I had bought a letter from Arthur Balfour. It was sending, asking, telling somebody that they were going to get a knighthood conferred by the king. And when I looked more closely, I realised he topped and tailed it, but actually the middle of it had been written by someone else. And that um, had written ones before, by someone else. Yes, all the ones before that are handwritten by the prime ministers themselves, including Derby, for example, informing the head of Freshfield he wouldn't be appointed a justice minister or an attorney uh, in the government. Um, and um, 
so he'd been writing even those kind of appointment rejection letters himself. And after Balfour's letter, almost all of them are typewritten that were just taking up Richard Richard's point, going the other direction. Uh, and this is a sort of one on the cusp where the middle of it is handwritten, uh, but not by Balfour. Um, so um, you wonder how on earth um, they coped with the correspondence. And you can imagine that the only way they did it was, um, you know, as we discussed earlier, that there were these thousands of letters to Churchill. Clearly, there must have been a lot fewer at that time for prime ministers to be able to answer them by hand themselves. Yeah, I suppose that's the thing, the mass, mass communication, even to the point that several people have been in touch with me and asked about letters that you've been sent, uh, uh, you know, letters from prime ministers. Obviously, every single person in the country got, got a letter from the prime minister. We were all told to stay at home. Uh, and, I, you know, lots of people have, have, have put them to one side and think, well, that, you know, that, that's, that's a piece of history. But I think you, there's one listed here, for one of these Boris Johnson letters, worth uh, listed for £500 on eBay. Um, yeah. do, do, do many? I mean, I suppose the thing about Churchill, Danny's saying that you know the, the Churchill ones are the most expensive to get hold of. I mean, I suppose the, the thing that both Kit and Richard, you're finding is that there's so much of this produced. It's very difficult for it to have a value, uh, you know, a huge amount of value for a sort of historical insight, but not necessarily financial value, Kit. Yeah, I mean, there are. I mean, in certain cases, um, yeah, you actually have to kind of uh, well more than thousands, tens of thousands, in the case of Enoch Powell, who, after his River of Blood speech uh, in 1968, received over 100,000 letters from members of the public. So, yeah, putting a putting a figure on, on that is uh, very hard to do. But, I mean, it's wonderful that we can go out and people can go out and buy these things, but it's, it's also really helpful that um, they're, they're in uh, kind of professionally run archives that allow people like me and Richard to have a look at them. <laughs> and, of course... Well, I suppose if we found, if you actually went to the archives and tried a, a statistical analysis, you'd find the vast proportion of letters to modern politicians received the reply that the person was grateful for the invitation to come and speak to their audience, but couldn't make it. Uh, I've got several of those. Um, and uh, I think those must be the common, the most common of all political letters. Um, Danny, just on the subject of that, a letter that was sent to you uh, from the office of uh, Prime Minister rather than the Prime Minister himself. It's my favourite one, I think, in the um, in the ones that you sent over from the Howard Wilson's office. Oh yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, it, it was when I was a scout. I sent uh, Harold Wilson a letter, sent setting out a whole load of questions I wanted him to answer. Um, he didn't. He re- they replied saying he couldn't. He didn't have time to answer them. And then a few days later, I got a, a letter addressed hilariously to Mr. David Finkelstein. Um, but, um, <laughs> uh, it's from it's from Marcia Williams. Uh, it contains a load of answers to questions. I can apply the questions from the answers. My favourite one, because it got I, I retrieved this during the time when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the party. I'd obviously asked him which newspapers he read. And he said, so Harold reads all the daily newspapers except the Morning Star. Um, it, on the question of cars, he would probably buy any middle-sized British car. His favourite sport is golf, but he also likes to watch soccer. That ends the debate about, about the way whether football should be soccer. He receives from between 500 to 1,000 letters a week. That's interesting uh, fact for our letter aficionados. Um, and my favourite 
favourite one is he does watch television, though he's usually too busy to do so in the evenings, but he likes feature programmes and the Muppets. Um, so he'd obviously be quite enjoying 10 Downing Street at the moment. Um, and um, uh, his favourite piece of music, uh, Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony, the Hallelujah Chorus and the Emperor Concerto. An absolutely fantastic letter. Yeah, absolutely. It's so well, it's the great so- thing here is that uh, uh, Harold Wilson's letters um, are one of the collections that we're looking at. So you never know, Daniel, we might actually find your original copy in there. <laughs> oh, that would be brilliant. That's uh, That would be terrific. Yeah, addressed it, dear David Finkelstein. That's absolutely uh, terrific. Uh, just, it's been lovely to speak to you. It's such a fascinating project. I've been counted by uh, Dr. Kit Cowell from King's College London and Professor Richard Toy from the University of Exeter. Thanks very much for taking us through that. And uh, Danny Finkelstein, thank you for taking us through your collection of uh, letters. We should be playing the Muppets already. But anyway, uh, that was uh, Political Letters. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.